Sunday, so I'm going to focus on that this morning. Take a break from the book of Acts. And let's read in Matthew chapter 21. All four Gospels record what is known as the triumphal entry, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Let's read that passage. I'm in Matthew 21, starting with verse 1 in the New King James Version. Matthew 21, 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. Now, I want to stop right there for a minute because I've never even really seen this before until just now. First of all, that word Lord, take note of that. He instructed them to tell the person, if anyone asked what they were doing, the, it was the Lord they were working for. And what they were to say was, the Lord has need of them. You know, I want to live my life in such a way that everything I do, every place I go, every agenda of mine is because the Lord needs me to do it. So that that will be my answer. People see me doing stuff, like untying a donkey. What are you doing? Faith, what are you, what are you still pastoring that church for in Wellsburg? What are you going over here to visit this person? Why are you spending your time doing this, Faith? Why did you make that decision? The Lord. Lord means master. The Lord has need of them. So just a little nugget right there. Why do we do what we do and go where we go and say what we say? The Lord has need of you and me to follow his command. So he, he, they were told to say the Lord has need of them. And Jesus said immediately that person will send the donkey. So verse 4 says all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and now he's going to, Matthew is quoting from Zechariah 9, 9. So this was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy of old. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice who's the, who the message is for. Tell the daughter of Zion. Any clue who that is? Tell the daughter of Zion. Who is that? It, it's, it's the church. It's us. I remember for my end of the term paper in Bible school, I had to do a paper. What is Zion? Define Zion. And there's all kinds of definitions and ways that people, religious people, Define Zion. Some, some make it strictly a physical place. And, and I, I opened the scriptures and I gave scriptures proving that Zion, the fulfillment of Zion, is the body of Christ. It's the perfection of beauty. Out of Zion, the Lord shines. I mean, yes, it started. It's foreshadowed in physical Zion in Israel. But who is the holy city that Jesus adorns as a bride in Revelation? 
the city of Zion. It's the church. And so the message to you and me today, not just to the Jews these were written to. Yes, it was for them, but the message to you and me today. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And how is he coming? Lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this was important because, I've, as I've said, probably for the, what, 10 years now that I've done a Palm Sunday sermon, a king riding into town on a donkey was a king coming in peace. If he had been coming as a mighty conqueror, a king, a war-making king, he would have come on a horse, but he came in a, on a donkey giving a clear signal that he was arriving in peace as the Prince of Peace. So the message for us today, tell the daughter of Zion, your king, church, is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went, verse 6, and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. So Jesus is riding on the donkey, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They recognized this was a fulfillment of their prophecy. This is the Messiah, the Christ, son of David, was very clearly a messianic proclamation. And that word Hosanna literally means, anyone know? Oh, save us. So they recognized Jesus in that moment as their promised Messiah that had been prophesied for centuries. And here he is, and they realize it, and they're quoting Zechariah. And when he had come into Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And they all realized he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies. But as you know, and if you've ever heard of a Palm Sunday sermon, you've probably heard this astonishing fact that this very crowd, a week later, what are they crying out? Crucify him. It's astonishing. They say crucify him. Jesus is being tried a week later before Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And, and Pilate says, what do you want me to do with this man? They cry out, crucify him over and over. Pilate says, I find him innocent. I find no wrong in this man. And they actually say, his blood be upon us and on our children. What a chilling declaration. And very prophetic, too, because without his blood upon us, we cannot be saved. But what they were saying is, his blood is on our hands, right? <laughs> Crucify him. The same people that only a week later are shouting out, Hosanna, save us. Astonishing. 
So how does one go from within a week, oh, God, save me, I need you, to, eh, crucify him. I'm better off without him. Because we look at this story and we think, well, we would never do that. Had I been in that crowd, waving my palm branches, spreading out my cloak on the road for Jesus, making the red carpet, welcoming a king, I certainly wouldn't be that same person in the same crowd a week later calling for his crucifixion. How does one go from, oh, save me, God, to, no, I really don't need you in my life after all? Well, I'll tell you how. See, when they were crying out, oh, save us, Messiah, implicit in that cry was not something else that makes all the difference. They were not, in fact, saying, rule us. See, they wanted a savior. They didn't want a master. They didn't want a king. They didn't want someone ruling their lives. They wanted someone, a Messiah, to come in and fix the problems on the outside. But rule my spirit. Rule my heart. Set up your throne in my heart and be the ruler of every thought, every word, every attitude. Oh, no. No, that's too much. No, away with that. Death to that. I can be my own ruler. Thank you very much. There's a famous painting. If you want to put that picture up, Rebecca. It's by a 17th century Flemish painter named Willem van Herp. It's his Palm Sunday painting. I want you to look at that for just a minute. Let's play a little game. There's not many of us. We can do this in a small church, a little interactive activity. This is Jesus on Palm Sunday riding into Jerusalem, the story we just read. But there's something unusual in this painting. This is kind of a game of one of these things is not like the other. Do you see it? When you see it, say it. Yeah, you can turn off the lights if it makes it a little easier. Just go ahead and turn them off. Yeah, that's good. Anybody see it? Something unusual? What's that? No. If you think you know, it's, it's an inconsistency in the painting. That's very intentional by the artist. What's that? No. It's, it's a lot more obvious than your... <laughs> no. 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 It's very obvious. It's very out there. No. <laughs> no, Jeff, it's not Elvis in the doorway. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> wow. Ah, you're... No. No, 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 you guys. <laughs> All right, turn, turn on the lights and I will tell you. <laughs> if you notice, okay, let me help you. 
Notice the clothing. What do you notice about all of the clothing? Is it all the same? What do you notice about the clothing on your left, all the way to the left? Notice the clothing of the women all the way to, to the far left. There, there's a, this is a spiritual lesson here. What's that? It's not of the period. He very intentionally, he very intentionally put some of the people in the clothing of his contemporaries, 17th century dress. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because the message, I believe, is twofold. Number one, Jesus is a savior for all people for all time. But I think what he is also is saying, when I look at this picture, I think what he's also is saying is we haven't changed. We think we would not be a part of that crowd crying, crucify him. We like to think that we are better than these people. But I think what he's saying is, no, all through the centuries, humans are humans. We haven't really changed. We have in us, as a result of the fall, this determination that I am going to do things my way. I want God to be my savior. Oh, I want him to rescue me. I want him to provide for me and deliver me and come help me when I need him. But rule me, master me, be subject to a king of a different kingdom than my own? Nah, I'm good. I think the message is we haven't changed, have we? Jesus said in Matthew 7:21, "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," shall enter the kingdom of heaven." Those are very sobering words. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord." In other words, Jesus says, "Even if you recognize that I must be more than a savior to you, I must be your Lord, even recognizing that and saying the words does not guarantee that you will what? Do the will of my Father in heaven. The rest of that verse is Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is someone who does the will of the Father? It is someone who is subject to the king. Someone who says, not my will, but thy will be done. Do you know what Judas said to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers came in to arrest Jesus? You know what Jesus act Judas actually said to Jesus, hail, master, before he greeted him with a kiss. In Matthew 8, verses 19 to 22, Jesus, well, let's just read it. Let's just go there. Matthew 8, verses 19 to 22. Uh, I'll start with verse 19. Matthew 8, 19. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, this is also rendered master, rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. You said that? I've said that. I have decided to follow Jesus. How many times have we sung that? 
Master, I, have, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you sure about that, mister? Because I'm homeless. In other words, what Jesus is saying, are you sure you want to follow me? Because sometimes it's inconvenient to follow me. Sometimes, in fact, very often you will find yourself way out of your comfort zone. Are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you mean it when you say, Master, I will follow you? And another one of his disciples, verse 21, Matthew 8, 21, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to bury a loved one. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Why would Jesus say that? Is he saying he should never take the time to bury a loved one? No, he's not saying that at all. He knew this man. He saw straight into his heart. He recognized that his priorities were all wrong and that he was married to family more than he loved God. And we know God is all about family. Obviously, we know that. Very much so. But the message here is be careful that your priorities and thinking that you, your priorities are straight, you actually don't have God on the back burner. A rich, young ruler, a rich young ruler came to Jesus in Matthew 19. You can turn there or I'll just, you can jot it down. I don't know the verse, but in Matthew 19, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good master, instructor, what must I do to be saved? See, here it is again. Oh, save us. Save me. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This man is looking for a savior, but we find out in the next instance by what Jesus says to him, he's not actually looking for a master, only a savior. Good teacher, what, what, what must I do to be saved? What does Jesus say to him? You remember the story in Matthew 19. Sell everything you have and follow me. Sell everything you have and follow me. Is Jesus telling us all to do that? No. He knows this young man, and he knows that his heart is married to his stuff. It says that man went away sorrow, sorrowful because he had many riches. You notice each of these instances, everybody has their own priority. Family and loved ones, comfort, money. There, these are good things. God blesses us with money. God sets us in families. God gives us a home and a place. But he says, with that, now let me be the master. In John 13, 13, Jesus said, after he washed the disciples' feet, right? Right? on the night of the Passover, right before his crucifixion, he's, he washes all their feet, and they're astonished. Master, why would you do this? We're, it should be the opposite. How can you wash our feet? You're the master. Jesus says in John 13, 13, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. In other words, you're getting it. 
I'm more than a savior. I'm your Lord and master. And then he says, if then I have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash the feet of others. Again, to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your Lord and Savior will require you and me to live a life of washing feet, doing the very hard, thankless, selfless, unrecognized, obscure thing sometimes. It will require a life that demonstrates the selfless, sacrificing love of Jesus if we call him master, if we call him Lord. Elizabeth Elliot said, Until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand, let alone accept his lordship. Until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ. See, it's so easy to take Jesus as your Savior. I did that somewhere around four years old. I don't even have a date. <laughs> I probably did it a few times. It's so easy to take Jesus as your Savior. Rescue me. Provide for me, deliver me, heal me. And yes, he so longs to do all of those things. That's what he came for. That's why we cry, Hosanna, save us. But when he starts putting his finger on those inner hidden things of the heart, those thoughts and attitudes, then we realize, okay, is he my Savior and Lord? Is he actually the master, the ruler of my life? Let's go back to the story in, in Matthew 21. I want you to see what Jesus does immediately after this messianic ride into Jerusalem. Immediately after all the fanfare and the shouting by the multitude of, Hosanna, save us, our king. Remember, they wanted a king to fix the stuff on the outside. They wanted this king to come and set them free from the Roman government. And boy, I'm praying for God to set us free from some stuff. It's a good, it's not a bad thing. I hope you're praying for this nation and for all the problems in government. We should be. It's a, it's a good thing. But ultimately, these things are passing away. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. What did Jesus really come to rule? Where did he really come to reign? He came to reign on the throne of your heart and on my heart. So we see this when we go back to Matthew 21. Let's back up, verse 11, Matthew 21, 11. The multitudes said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. They recognize this prophet from Nazareth is actually the Messiah they've been waiting for. And verse 12 has that transitional four-letter word, then. Then Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. 
and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, and he quotes, he, he, he quotes from Isaiah 50, uh, 56, 7. He quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Wow, how'd you like to be called by God himself a den of thieves? Why does he do this? Why is this the first thing he does as their king? You can start to see why they end up a week later shouting, crucify him. The very first thing he does as their proclaimed king is he goes into their temple and he literally overturns their religious system. You know what he's doing there when he overturns the tables of the money changers and doves go flying out of the cages? Lambs and sheep go running around everywhere. He's cleaning house. See, see they, what they were doing was selling the elements of sacrifice to make worship convenient and easy. If you can't come up with your own sacrifice, you don't have a lamb to bring from your own fold, it's okay, we got you. We'll sell you one. We'll make worship very convenient and easy. For a discounted price of only $2.79 today. The message here, Jesus' righteous anger was a message saying, worship is a true sacrifice. If I am your master and your Lord, you will worship at any cost, at any inconvenience, with any lack or loss of comfort. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. They were thieving, ripping people off by selling the elements of worship. Well, we haven't changed. Don't we worship corporately when it's convenient and comfortable? But what's interesting to me, and I've also never noticed this before, where else in Scripture do we see the word temple? What comes to mind? 1 Corinthians 6.19, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says these words. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You are not your own. You are now mastered, ruled. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, the first thing Jesus will do when you ask, when you come under his lordship, is he will cleanse your temple. That's what he does. The first thing he does is he moves in and he cleans house. Because you are the temple. It's interesting. Jot down that chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You know what the context was when Paul said that? You're the temple. Sexuality. 
One of the things we hold the tightest, oh, God can touch everything in my life, and I sure want him to bless me, but don't touch my personal stuff that I hold most dear. He can't have what I do with my body. That's not his business. And in that context, Paul says, when you give your body to someone outside the context of marriage, you are actually defrauding yourself. You are sinning against your own body. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, glorify God with your body. So, And it's not just the area of sexuality. It's every single area of our life. The first thing the king does when he sets up his rule on the throne of your heart, is he cleanses the temple. See, we're fine with spreading our clothes out on the ground. We come into church, we wave the branches, we wear the clothes, but don't touch my body. And yet Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It is only reasonable that we would be subject to the king, which we profess as the master of our lives. The second thing he does... Let's continue on in Matthew 21, 12. First, he cleanses the temple. And then there's that transitional word again. Verse 14. Then, see, he's cleansed the temple. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When Jesus becomes the king of your life, he cleanses you, and then he heals you. That's what he wants to do. See, we're all about the healing, but not necessarily always all about the cleansing. He came to and dwell a holy people, and only he can make you and I holy, you and me. The Messiah King, they wanted him to heal their land, but not their body, soul, and spirit. And yes, he does. We're commanded to pray, Lord, heal our land but he came to heal us. He came to heal the broken human condition. He came to heal you, mind, body, soul, and spirit. What did Jesus say in Isaiah 61.1? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That is a really good king. That's a really good king. I've never read Plato's Republic. Maybe sometime I will. But I'm familiar with it enough to know that Plato's idea of the beautiful city, a perfect king, was a philosopher king, a king who loved wisdom. I read these words, I read about this king who's come to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. That sounds to me like a really good philosopher king, a king who loves wisdom and its wisdom from on high. 
It's the wisdom of a king that says, look, I am here for more to just heal your land. I am heal, here to heal your broken heart. I mean, what would happen in our land, in our society, in our nation, if we actually allowed the king to heal our broken hearts? What do you think would happen to families? What do you think would happen to schools and workplaces if we let the king with a capital K, come in and do what he came to do right here. What do you think would happen? See, we've got our priorities all messed up. Oh, save us from the government. Yes, pray it. Yes. But God, help us recognize what the king came for. He's an eternal king. Heal our hearts turn them toward you and humble submission and recognition that you are the master and not just the savior. R.C. Sproul said, the irony of New Testament lordship is that only in slavery to Christ can a man discover authentic freedom. Oh, don't we love our freedom? Oh, aren't we all about our freedom? I know I am. <laughs> you want to push the biggest justice button I've got, mess with my freedom. And yet the only, only in slavery to Christ can a man discover authentic freedom. See, no one can actually ever, ever take away your freedom if you're free in Christ. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed because the King Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So the King Jesus, he comes in to cleanse us. He cleanses the temple. He heals us. And thirdly and finally, he covers us. There's a place in Matthew 23, verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. This is another thing Jesus did after this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He looks over the city from a high place, and he says, as he gazes at the city, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often... I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were not willing. I wonder if that is one of the most tragic forms of disobedience is being unwilling to let the Lord cover and protect you. He says, so many times I long to gather you under my wings. And this is a message for individuals and the church and for all people. So many times I longed to gather you and protect you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks. See, this is the, this is the nurturing heart of God. But you are not willing. And then what, he, what does he say next? He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. It's interesting to me that this is the third item on this outline this morning. He heals us. Uh, he cleanses the temple, cleans house, heals, 
and cover. See, it's not just enough to have God come in and clean you up. Not just enough to have God heal you. But what he really longs to do then is cover you, be a shield about you. That's the nurturing, loving heart of God. And he says, but some of you were not willing, and therefore your clean house has now left you desolate. I wonder how many holy, cleansed people are wandering alone because they're not willing to simply humbly believe that God is that loving and nurturing and protecting, that his heart is not really that good. He says, therefore, your house is left to you desolate. You're alone, without comfort, without that, that love that we sing about. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. That's the covering love God longs to show us every single day. He goes on in that verse, I'm in Matthew 23, 39. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's that messianic cry again. But what is he saying this time? He's speaking of the future. He's speaking of his second coming. And notice he does not include the part that says, Hosanna, oh, save us, because it will be too late for that. Too late. He's speaking of a time when everyone will recognize he is Lord and he was Lord and wanted to be the Lord of my life. But I was not willing to come to him. And my house is now left to me desolate. And I recognize that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's too late to cry, Hosanna, save me. Christ's lordship, Paul Washer said this, Christ's lordship is a blessed hope for some and a terrifying nightmare for others. Regardless of our response, it is an unalterable reality. Paul said in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, therefore God has also highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every knee someday will bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Think of that. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, Master, King, to the glory of God the Father. You and I can either proclaim him and confess him as Lord and Master now, or we will then. And those who wait till then, it will be a very different confession. It will be a confession of shame and great sorrow and regret because I was not willing that he should gather me under his wings. Now, I know it's easy to hear a message like this and say, oh, faith, 
this is kind of hard-hitting. Talk about obedience, lordship, subjection to this king, this master. What if he's a taskmaster? Well, in fact, it says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Think about it. His commandments are not burdensome. I looked that up in the Greek. It, it means burdensome. It literally means weighty, heavy. See, people think, I could never give my life to God. I like that Savior part, but I don't like that Master part because I don't want to be laden down with a bunch of rules and laws. No, his commandments are not burdensome. You know why? They're for your good. They're for your good. It's the paradox of coming under the lordship of Christ and submitting to him and obeying his laws that actually lightens our load. What? Really? You mean I can preserve my body for your glory? I can save myself all kinds of heartache and turmoil by simply submitting my life to you? That's just an example. His commandments are not burdensome. In fact, they all boil down to only two, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said to him, someone came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? I mean, what Jesus says here is shocking because they literally have hundreds of Mosaic laws that they've got to live by every single day. I've talked to these people. They still do. I've talked to them. I have talked to, to people who follow the Jewish code, and, and they've got to have their silverware in a special place, a separate place in their kitchen to keep kosher. I mean, it's, they're, and, and these are beautiful people. I'm not, it's not, I love these. They're God's people. But his commandments are not burdensome. So this person came to Jesus and testing him, well, which is the greatest? What's the most important one out of all this list? What's the most important one? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's got to start in the heart. Then the soul and the mind will follow. This is the first and great commandment. Why is it the great commandment? Because if you love God, everything else falls into place. If you love him, you will serve him gladly because his commandments are not burdensome. He's that hen who wants to gather you under his wings. He's a God worth serving. Jesus goes on to say, the second law is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So easy to think I keep the first one until I realize I'm not keeping the second one very well. But they flow together. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets. As I think about this message today, and how I might have, had I lived back then, been a part of that crowd a week later, rejecting the kind of rulership he came to set up in my life. 
being so disillusioned. Can you imagine how disillusioned they were? Here's their Messiah. He's supposed to be now sitting on the throne, having overthrown the Roman government. And here he is hanging on a cross, being mocked as the king of the Jews, wearing a crown of thorns. Can you imagine the disillusionment, the great disappointment? They totally missed his message and his rule. I don't want to miss it. And yet I can so easily miss it, and I do miss it. How many times in my life do I find myself trying still to be my own master? Ruling my own emotions, and I don't rule them very well. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) I think of these beautiful words in this old hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated. That's the word for today. This is about consecration. It's a giving of your life in submission to his lordship. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands And let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing or speak for those of you who don't sing. Always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. What part of your life is Jesus asking you to surrender to his lordship today? Can we bow our heads? And kneel before him, as it were, this great king who would rule your life and mine? What part of your life is he putting the finger on today and saying, have you given this over to my lordship? Do I actually master your life completely? Let's just spend a minute and maybe we need to allow the Lord to come in and cleanse the temple this morning. Maybe confess some things. He says, the word says he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness when you confess your sins to him. Maybe there's a brokenness somewhere you have not surrendered to him for healing. Maybe you're that lost chick out there trying to weather the storm. He says, how often have I longed to gather you under my wings? But thus far you haven't been willing. willing. Would you be willing today? Maybe it's a fear 
Maybe it's worry. It needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Take another minute. Father God, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for sending your son 